When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Okay, Fitz, I have a question for you. Okay. What's the outdoor accomplishment that you're most proud of? Like, maybe it's an FA of a climb or some hard red point or gnarly big wall or a badass ski tour, you know, something like that. But yeah, tell me about one of those that stands out. I would actually say that I don't think any one thing stands out, but the things I'm always the most proud of when I look back at them in the outdoors they were the experiences where I dug really deep. You know, I'd be like trying to on-site something or trying to work out a, a really difficult crux sequence a thousand feet off the ground. And I'd sort of go into this mode where I would really focus and really fight and really struggle, but struggle in a conscientious way where it was like I was applying my mind to something difficult and there's like a certain amount of tenacity that it revealed inside of me. And those were really, really rewarding moments. And they were critical moments, I would say, for the rest of my life, because I think somehow that figuring out how to tap into tenacity, to set a goal that was maybe a little bit beyond the comfort level or way past the comfort level and then go and achieve that, I carried that back into the rest of my life. And so when I look back, it's maybe no one experience, but it's this feeling, that moment of having to decide whether you really want to try and then executing on it or at least giving it your all and failing. Those are the things I'm the most proud of. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, when they name the accomplishments that they're most proud of, oftentimes the pride comes with the difficult moments that you got through, right? Like Mm -hmm. if everything goes perfectly, oftentimes there isn't that same sense of accomplishment. Mm. Yeah, that it's like in order to be fulfilling, something needs to be difficult. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that for sure. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is I think that there's like, 
this interesting paradox. It's like mm. we make this point when we're going outside to choose objectives that are going to be challenging, mm-hmm. that are going to make us struggle. Yeah. And then we do everything in our power to prepare for them to minimize the struggling. But then, like, maybe if there isn't enough struggling, if everything goes right, somehow maybe the accomplishment isn't as satisfying. Sort of like the difference between, like, type one and type two fun, right? Like, Mm. skiing blower pow or cruising up, like, well-protected, easy multi-pitch climbs or, like, shuttling a dope mountain bike ride. It's wicked fun, but I feel like those aren't usually the thing shuttling is for weenies come on i mean i've done it like a few times in my life but you gotta love the out yeah i mean that's exactly what i'm saying though like okay like i see what you're saying nobody names those as like their most proud outdoor accomplishments i i I hear you it's it's this weird sort of like we want to do things that are difficult then our like minds will basically want them to sort of be easy but if they are easy they don't maybe feel quite as rewarding as they could have been. And that that is funny. So, okay, to bring this back around because we are introducing... Cool. Did I do any... Have I, I'm like, I'm probably just destroying your your day. You're like, dude, couldn't you have just been like, well, I like this like one climb that was like really good. Yeah, I mean, that would have been easier yeah, no, for me, my, for sure. My, 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 my memory's going, Jen. Nothing's simple anymore. I understand. But okay, we're introducing a Dirtbag Diaries episode, Fitz. So I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna bring this what's back the around. What's Dirtbag Diaries? What's this? What's this show I'm on? Yeah. Where am I? Uh. Well, this Dirtbag Diaries is about our friend Chris <laughs> Kelman. Chris. Oh, that nice young fellow. Yep. Uh, and so he and Austin Sidak and Miranda Oakley went to the Coast Range a couple of summers ago and put up some FAs on some big walls. I've heard about this. Yep. And it should have been a total dream trip, right? Like everything went perfect. Mm-hmm. And it turned out not to be a dream trip, but not in the classic outdoor adventure dream trip falling apart kind of way. So what was it? Was it just too easy? Well, I think that that's why you have to listen to the Dirtbag Diaries episode. <sighs> okay. I'm psyched. Yeah. Uh, Is that it? That's... Do we, was, are you actually going to use anything I just said? Or like, we actually like still continuing on a conversation? Or is there another question that I need to answer? No, that's it. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, n- now I would like you to do the like, I'm Fitz Cahal and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries part. <laughs> and you could introduce me too. That would be great. Okay. Jen, this is Jen Altschul. And I'm Fitz Cahal. And you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. start at the beginning huh it's where all great stories start (laughs) so how did the idea for this trip come about okay right so i'm sitting in my office which is just a fancy way of saying a spare bedroom in my house in colorado 
and I'm doing what I often do when I procrastinate, which is I'm looking at Google Earth. And I'm going to have a little bit of time during the summer, about a month, that I can do something really exciting. I don't have much money, and I don't have enough time to like go all the way around the world. So I'm like, what can I do? Looking for big granite. Because that's like my favorite thing is go somewhere remote, go find a wall that's never been climbed and climb on really good solid stone. Chris doesn't have the funds to fly somewhere like Alaska. And there's not really anything a thousand meters or higher in the lower 48 that's untouched. So he narrows in on British Columbia and starts playing around with the controls on Google Earth. And sure enough, I stumble upon this dark valley, like this super deep cut and I spin the view on Google Earth around so that I'm looking almost at ground view, looking up. And as those controls change, I just notice this thing that looks like a rocket ship of granite emerging and like growing bigger and bigger and bigger, this super striking prow. And I take my little cursor and hover over the top and it's like, 5,000 meters at the summit. And then I look at the bottom and it's like 2,500. Like, wait a minute, from valley bottom to top on this thing is like 2,000 meters? Holy crap, that's huge. It's like an L cap stacked on top of itself. And so that's where it started. I knew nothing about the place. I didn't know whose land that was. I just found this chunk of stone. first thing I did was I took a screenshot of that prow on Google Earth and sent it to Austin, as I often do. Austin Syadak, climber, professional photographer. Austin and Chris have been good friends and climbing partners for years. And what followed was a lot of research. Chris began to scour the internet for information about this dark valley. He found a few named peaks nearby and used those to refine his search. I found some old reports in the Canadian Alpine Journal. They did this ski traverse of the summits that ring the valley. And there's some sentence in there where it's like, I stood on top and dropped a penny and watched it fall a whole 2,000 meters and it never hit a thing on the way down, (laughs) you know? And I found some other random, random thing on like page three of Google where some guy was like, I've been a photographer for Nat Geo for years and this is the most amazing place in the world I've ever been. I mean, it took me weeks to find all this stuff. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. In those weeks of research, a few things became clear. I had reason to believe that granite would be really good. I was highly confident that no rock climbers had ever been in the valley just because judging by the sheer size of the walls, If anyone had gone in there and climbed anything, they would have mentioned it. And the climbers that were most active in that part of the world over the last 20 or 30 years had not been in there. So I knew it would be awesome. I knew it would be big. And the last question was, would it be possible to afford getting in there? It was pretty quickly evident that we would need helicopters because if you've ever been bushwhacking in the Pacific Northwest, you know, like wading through head high devil's club and slide alder and for 25 miles in a tight river valley if doable it's certainly not fun 
and doing that with haul bags full of expedition gear, it wasn't going to happen. So Chris had to find a climbing partner, a helicopter, and a way to pay for said helicopter. At this point, at pretty much every step of the way, I'm ready for the trip to fall through. But from the first email, Austin said he was on board. And together, the two of them managed to pitch the project to a company that was willing to pay the hard costs, the helicopter, food, gear, etc., in exchange for photos and digital content. As soon as we find that, that's when I learned that this is on First Nation land. And so then a whole new line of, okay, well, I'm ready to bail as soon as they tell me, no, you can't go in there. So... First, I send them like a cold call email, send to info at, and expect never to hear from them. I actually hear from them. They tell me that we can go in there. So I was like, wow, they're letting us go in. Well, okay, but to feel comfortable about this, I really need to tell them like, we're going to be shooting for this company because I don't want them to see some picture like months later and be like, hey, you never told us you were doing that. So I'm ready for them to reject it on those grounds. And initially they did. Initially they were like, oh, okay, it sounds like you guys are profiting off this trip. We don't really like that. So I wrote them an email back and was just like, hey, like I totally respect your position, but just wanted to clarify a little. I don't think any of us are really going to profit off this. This is more about getting expenses covered. And never expected them to write back. And... They wrote back and were like, oh, okay, that actually sounds all right. You have our permission to go. If you die, it's your own fault, <laughs> basically. Permission secured. Chris invited his good friend, Miranda Oakley, to join him in Austin. Miranda's an incredible climber. She's one of my best friends, you know, 513 desert on-site climber. In the months that followed, the trio finished their preparations and made their way to BC. And got up there, and the weather forecast looked horrible for flying. But, like, the day that we got up there, it actually turned out, and we flew in, and that worked out. I found myself sitting on this little beach, this little spit of gravel along this roaring, beautiful glacial melt river, standing underneath of this huge wall, like one of the biggest walls I've ever stood beneath, with the helicopter like flying away. I look around and we're basically in a jungle Yosemite Valley, super dense old growth forest, really big Pacific Northwest trees. You look across the river, and there's this beautiful, clean, 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 great-looking granite for 1,500 feet. Turn 180 degrees, and you're standing beneath this wall that is just like as far as the eye can see, vertical stone. Everywhere you look, walls and peaks, walls and peaks, jungle, river, like beautiful terrain. And definitely absolutely not another soul in sight. There's not any sign of civilization anywhere. And I was just like, holy shit, we're in here. I can't believe we're actually in here. (laughs) 
The team established base camp around the little beach on the river and into the groves of old growth woven with wild blueberries, blackberries, and salmon berries. They picked a line up the rocket ship cliff that looked like it would probably go. Next step, get to the base of the wall. We ended up cutting a trail to the base of the wall over the course of three days that we later walked in about 30 minutes. So that's how thick it was. Devil's Club over the tops of our heads, like literally making a tunnel through a slope of Devil's Club and blackberry brambles. That muscle on like the top of your forearm, like we were all so worked, that muscle was throbbing on all of us just from chopping with the machete for three days. Trail cut, the team hauled gear to the base of the cliff and prepared to launch into the vertical world. So there's still a lot of things that could go awry at this point, like... Yeah. It's a big gamble anytime you try to go somewhere new and do an FAA something that right. there isn't a whole lot of information on. So right. thus far, you've had just an amazing amount of things... Go right. Go right. Yeah. Uh, were you expecting to be able to get to the top of this thing now? I would say yes, but only because I'm always expecting to get to the top of something, even when I have no reason to expect that. As far as climbing goes, I'm more optimistic than I have any cause to be. Like, I'm not any sort of special, like, super great climber. I mean, I'm confident. I've done a lot of new routing, but... You know, I just always stand at the base and I'm like, oh, we're totally going to get to the top. Like, this line will go. It'll be awesome. That blank arete two-thirds of the way up that's like 100 meters long. Oh, there will be pro in it. Or, oh, yeah, we'll be able to bolt it on lead. Whatever. Like, And so, yeah, I felt super confident at the base. But the fact is, like, we're looking up at 1,000 meters of unclimbed rock. Anything could go wrong at any time. first day on the wall, the team made it up about 200 meters. Which was really jungly climbing. Full-on slinging vines for protection and fifth-classing your way up overhanging vegetated chimneys. and Climbing that I actually think is really fun. I don't think most people would, but the wall kind of cleared up after that, and it was looking like good rock. The team descended back to the base of the wall that night. The weather forecast looked clear. So they packed up four days' worth of food and prepared to leave the ground for a while. As we started climbing up, things just went. We found cracks, and we worked really well as a team of three. Austin is an incredible grease man to have on a wall. He was super selfless and was like, you guys can climb. I'll do all the horrible chores of hauling our bags up. Miranda's an incredible climber, so like she's the rope gun for any hard crack pitches. I'm pretty good at wrangling unruly trees and vegetation. And so we just had a really good dynamic as far as everyone having jobs that they could do. Chris, Austin, and Miranda pushed the ropes up another 150 meters or so, found a big ledge with running water to set up camp. And Chris decided to try to get the ropes just one more pitch above camp. And I ended up in this shallow stemming corner. The pro was okay. I think something would have caught me probably if I'd fallen, but I was definitely doing like some run out 5'11 stemming in a dirty corner, like calf muscles burning while you're cleaning out 
either a gear placement or like a finger hold in like this vegetated corner, but worked out and got to the top of this little pillar, fixed the line and we went down and slept. Get up in the morning, Miranda's going to lead the first block. So she starts out and it's actually kind of tough terrain right off of our anchor. And that's where we drilled the only protection bolt of the whole route, which is kind of amazing, like 1300 meter route with one protection bolt. It's certainly unusual from my experience. The team found another ledge, hauled up camp, and fixed the ropes another 200 meters up. And then at the end of the day, we're faced with this overhanging moss chimney with loose blocks in it. And Miranda decides that she's going to give the lead to me. (laughs) She's been leading all day, so it's totally fair. And Austin hikes out on this ledge to take photos. And so I end up climbing this chimney, which is a little bit harrowing. Definitely like really uncertain if it's RX or just PG. It depends whether the blocks are going to pull out. The blocks don't pull out and the climbing goes fine. So we settle in for the night and don't sleep very well. I think at this point, either Austin or Miranda maybe had the runs a little bit. So that's going on. But basically like typical wall fare, but everything's going well. And we're cruising up the thing. Day three on the wall, the team made it to the real meat of the climb. The granite's so good, like super clean, really featured. These beautiful quartz dikes running horizontally like ribbons throughout the wall. Really high quality texture. And we get in this beautiful off-width layback corner that is super pleasant, fun climbing. Austin takes out the drone, so I'm up there leading in the middle of nowhere on this huge wall, having a hooting and hollering good time, and there's a drone flying around me, and I'm like, whoa, this is so weird. This is what being a pro climber must be like. The terrain eased off after the corner pitch and the team found themselves on a giant sloping ledge, an obvious camp three. We take a long time finding just the most primo camp spot, which is maybe a couple fifth class moves to get down to these cool spots. Go down there, build a little fire, settle in for the night, check the weather, everything looks good. There's like a 0.03% chance that there's gonna be 0.3 millimeters of rain at some point during the night. And we're like, all right, cool, no big deal. Right before going to bed, I think we discussed, we were like, well, in the off chance that there's rain, let's go up to this little notch where it's kind of like some heather and we could maybe put a tarp over us. The next thing I recall is a drop of water on my face. And the second thing is Austin yelling at me and being like, it's raining. And then... The next thing is like a wall of water, just instant deluge. Everything is soaked immediately. And I've got my glasses. They're like falling halfway off my face. They're steamed up. I'm trying to like grab the tarp, the rope that we slept on, my sleeping bag, which is down and getting soaked through, just trying to shove everything into a pack. And suddenly like the low fifth class moves, we just 
walked down to get there are super harrowing. Somehow my headlamp gets stuck in blue mode. I didn't even know it had a blue mode. Miranda's out of there. She's like up in the meeting spot. Austin's leaving. I see his headlamp disappearing and I'm cruxing out and I'm like, you know, there's a thousand meters of air beneath us. And I remember being like, Austin, I need your help. (laughs) I might die right now. And that really can't happen. Like that would be really stupid. So Austin comes back, he grabs the tarp, hauls me up this one short section of fifth class. And we meet up in this little bed of heather and take the tarp and put it over our heads and hunker in and everyone's just like, holy shit, what just happened? (laughs) Wake up in the morning late. Everything's still soaking wet. We take our time and try and decide on plans. We had plenty of food, so we could do like any number of things. Things start to dry off, eventually the sun comes out, we dry our sleeping bags, and we're starting to feel kind of motivated. The three climbers decided to start up a low angle shoulder. So we're like, well, okay, let's bring a lead line, and I guess we'll bring a tag line in case we have to wrap, and well, let's bring a little bit of food, and the emergency bivy gets put into the bag. It's like, okay, we're moving. And it's like probably four o'clock in the afternoon at this point, Pacific Northwest summer. So we have tons of light left. We start moving and sure enough, it's mostly fourth class scrambling on vegetation and we're moving super fast. This is Austin's glory day. Austin's like super good at low fifth class, weird vegetated Northwest terrain. So he gets to do all the leading and Miranda and I are both just trying to keep pace with him which we can barely do and suddenly we're walking up this little snow cone to the top and there we are and it's the golden hour it's perfect light everywhere literally in every direction there's endless mountains endless snow-capped peaks super beautiful like sharp pointy peaks off in the distance The summit's really nice. This super cool rounded top that drops off in every direction. I can't believe we're there. It's amazing. (laughs) And then it's like, we got to shoot photos because it's like, well, it's perfect light. This is the moment, right? I don't like it. And Miranda doesn't like it. And I'm pretty sure Austin doesn't like it too. Like, it's like the last thing you want to do is like, Hey, go back and like, can you just walk up towards the summit one more time so we can take this shot? So this was probably the first moment that for me, I was like, there's something wrong with this trip. I don't really know what it is. This should be one of the most exciting moments of my life, but there's something that feels hollow about it. I think I'd built it up in my head a lot at this point, not just this individual peak, but thinking about one day being a professional climber. I'm not that good a climber, but this feels like the consummation of those dreams. I found the valley, I envisioned the trip, I got the funding, made it happen, stood at the base, picked the line, climbed it, sent, we're at the top. And it's not feeling the way I want it to feel. And then you feel like an asshole for feeling let down. 
You're like, God, I can't believe I'm even feeling this way. I'm so ungrateful and such a jerk to not just be whooping and hollering right now. Many hours later, we get back to camp. Totally worked. It's probably like two in the morning. And just settling in for the night. Everyone's sprawled out however they can be. And we're looking off to the north and like you can see these city lights and it looks really pretty. And then Austin's like, wait a minute, what are we looking at? Cause there's no city up there. And I blink and rub my eyes and Miranda turns off her headlamp and we're looking and there's just like this kind of white glowy haze out there, sort of this curtain of white light. And we're like, what in God's name is that? Because there isn't a city. And eventually we realized we were staring at Northern Lights. And at this point, I'm like, all right, whatever. Who cares about what happened on the summit? Like, this is the coolest thing ever. The team named the peak Aurora, after the Aurora Borealis they saw, and named the route the Northwest Passage. It took over 12 hours the following day to rappel back to the ground and stumble back to base camp. They still had a week and a half before the helicopter would turn back up on the little beach, and plenty of food. So it's pretty much all play at this point. We've accomplished our goal, everything else is icing on the cake. It could just rain for the next 10 days and whatever. It's no big deal. It did rain for a couple days, so we took that time for much-needed rest. Did a lot of photo shoot-downs of, like, collecting blueberries, of flipping pancakes, of playing cards in camp. And Miranda and I are not pros. Austin's a pro. This is what he does for a living. And he's used to working with professional climbers. That That's what they do for a living. But, like, Miranda and I, we don't know what we're doing, and so... Austin has to be like, Chris, at this moment, there is something about the way you look that's ruining this photo. Do you have any idea what it is? And I'm like, no, I don't have a clue. And he's like, your pants are above your belly button and your jacket's tucked into them. You look like an idiot. So he had to deal with us being complete amateurs and also kind of being grumpy about it because... We're like, dude, really? Uh, do we really have to shoot photos right now? He's like, yeah, you really do. This is why we're able to make this trip happen. So needless to say, it, it leads to tensions, right? I mean, you're spending three weeks in very close proximity to friends, good friends for sure. But like, you're not getting phone calls from your significant others or your friends. You can go to your tent, but that's about it. And if you go to your tent in a huff, everyone's like, well, what's wrong with so-and-so? So, you know, it's expedition dynamics, like tensions rise and we were squabbling a little bit, but you know, I find that to not be a problem and it's to be expected. The streak of everything being perfect continues. Like if we could have said, yeah, we would love to have three days of rain so we don't feel bad about not doing anything and we have time to recover, but then we would like the rain to stop. That's like what we would have asked the universe for and that's exactly what happened. We decided to try and climb that steep wall across the river from us. And actually, probably the true crux of the trip, at least safety-wise, was crossing that river to set up a Tyrolean. And because I'm 
uh, dumb. I volunteered to do it. So Chris stripped down to a pair of shorts, a helmet, and a harness, and Miranda put him on belay. Like it was raging. And probably not raging if you're like a whitewater kayaker. You would laugh if you saw what I was talking about is raging. But like for me, a landlubber, this river was raging. So, you know, I'm starting to like get out and the water takes me off my feet and I'm now I'm swimming unintentionally. And we hadn't really planned out what to do. And Miranda's got tension on the rope. And climbing, if the climber weights the rope, you're like, okay, well, we'll give tension. <laughs> but in swimming <laughs> across a river, if the rope gets tension, you get pulled under. So I like mustered all the strength I had to like break my head out of the water, take a gasp of air and be like, rope! <laughs> and I made it to the other side and like looked like a drowned rat pulling myself up. But all good, no injuries, didn't die. With a line across the river, the team set up a Tyrolean, hauled their gear across, and started hiking toward the base of this gorgeous steep wall. And this area we dubbed the Shangri-La Slabs, because getting up to the other wall was hellacious bushwhacking. But here we were just on these beautiful slabs, like fourth class terrain, clean, beautiful granite with waterfalls everywhere. And we hike up almost to the base of the wall and there's a football field size ledge of granite, just perfect clean bedrock with wood for a fire and a little trickle of water running through it so we can sleep next to a water feature. In the morning I wake up and there's this ribbon waterfall coming off of the wall we're gonna climb. And in the morning light, it's a rainbow. It's totally heaven, like it's Shangri-La. Miranda woke up that morning not feeling well. So Chris and Austin set out alone up the wall. And it was really, really good. Like as good of rock as I've ever climbed on anywhere. The pair moved up relatively easy terrain until they found themselves at the base of a corner with a crack soaring up it. Splitter, perfect fingers. The one problem with consistent splitter cracks is that they require a lot of the same sized pieces of protection. Something you wouldn't carry with you unless you knew that's what you would need. Chris and Austin only had one proper sized cam, so Austin launched up on the off chance that perhaps the crack would eventually change sizes or constrict in such a way that he could wedge nuts in for protection. Eventually, like 20 meters up, he gets a nut placement. He hangs on it and we're like, all right, man, let's think about it. We could put bolts next to the crack. No one's ever going to be back here. The climbing above looks amazing. Or maybe they figured they could just put in a couple of bolts, make it into a belay repel station, see if Maybe the crack changed widths further up. Then they imagined trying later to explain their decision to another climber, to explain why they had bolted a perfect crack. And we were both just like, nope, can't come up with the justification. So Austin left a nut and we bailed and decided to go back to camp. And it was hard. I mean, like the climbing was really world-class and the climbing on the other wall was really fun, but it's like Austin had no real climbing shots from the trip at this point that would be really 
in your face, like, wow, that's an awesome climbing shot. So it was hard from that perspective, but I think in the end we made the right decision. following morning, Miranda still wasn't feeling well. Chris and Austin headed back to the peak. This time, they had decided on a lower angle, more mellow looking line up a different face of the rock. We're just like, all right, we're just going to go exploring alpine style. And yeah, once again, everything goes great. And after a smooth 300 meters of moderate climbing, the partners reached the summit. The sun's going down. This bald eagle flies by. There are like all these other walls we can see from this side of the valley where we're like, oh my God, looks so good. We have to come back and climb it. And yeah, you look around from up there and you cannot see a shack in sight. There's no power lines, no homes, no street lights. Like this is true wilderness. One of the most remote places I've ever been. Maybe the most remote place I've ever been in my life. Though climbing to the summit had been relatively easy, getting off the peak proved harder. They had dragged their ropes through the snow on top of the peak, which meant wrapping with unwieldy, sopping wet ropes. And then the bugs found them. The bugs had been totally chill the whole trip, but like at one point I was leading the wraps and I got to this place where we were going to make an anchor and they were just swarming and I was starting to lose it. We'd been on the move for like 12, 14 hours at that point. And it was just like so bad. It was like, there's just nothing you can do. And I was like, this is the hardship of the trip. Finally, we've gotten to the hard part. It's like the one hour of bugs in your face. Chris made it down to a bush that he decided would serve as their next repel station. It was a big enough bush that he just wrapped the rope over it and got ready to wait the rope for the next repel. Meanwhile, Austin arrived and started to pull the rope they had just descended. I'm like impatient, so I'm starting to like wait the other rope. And he's like, wait, dude, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I'm like, what? He's like, just hold on. And like the other rope comes down. And I'm like, all right, dude, let's keep going. And he's like, Chris, wait, the rope's sliding off of the bush. (laughs) And I like look up and I've done like a really shitty job of slinging this bush with the rope and is basically just working its way up and over these not very big branches. And he's like, dude, if I wait the rope right now, we are both gonna die. And I was so exhausted. I remember, like, I don't like being wrong. No one likes being wrong, but I'm like, don't often admit when I'm wrong. And this was one incontrovertible moment where it's like, you are definitely wrong. And I just was like, all right, I'm done. I'm in timeout. You're leading the raps from here down. And Austin was like, no problem, dude. Totally cool. And I was, this was maybe the first time I can remember that I, in a climbing situation, just basically said, okay, I am 100% out of control. I'm going to let my partner take care of everything. And I'm going to do what they tell me to and I'm not going to think anymore. And that was a really weird position to be in for me, but it was kind of cool. And Austin nailed it, like totally ace job, got us down safely 
And the next day we break down the camp and the helicopter shows up. And that was it. I mean, everything conspired in our direction and like, we pretty much nailed it. We sent two mountain routes and tapped these summits. Nobody got injured, nobody died. We didn't go into the financial hole to do it. This should have been like the coolest experience of my life. And I was immediately feeling kind of empty about the experience. And I couldn't figure out why. And there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe it's just because you went into it with too high of expectations, right? It's like when you plan out a birthday party for like this loved one that you're going to give this surprise party. Your expectations are so high that reality can never live up to it. But I don't think that's what it is. Because in this case, reality definitely lived up to it. Like I have all of these snapshot memories of like, the rainbow colored waterfall in the morning or like the last light of day playing on the little trickle of water that we slept next to on the Shangri-La slabs, you know, standing on the snow cone summit with Austin and Miranda and looking in every direction and just seeing beauty everywhere you could see. The experience did live up to the hopes for it. But I think the hollowness comes from the fact that maybe the things that were required to make the experience happen no longer feel worth it to me. What do you mean? Well, I think it's kind of like a perfect storm of all the things that I thought were right ended up being wrong. So like getting the trip paid for, I had made up in my mind that given the opportunity, I was cool with being like, all right, yeah, whatever, I'll pose down in a really cool place because that's part of the job. But given the opportunity and realizing what that actually looked like, I realized this thing that I've been working for for like half a decade, trying to like bang down the doors of the industry, all of that effort and all of those years led me to the doors open. You're going to go in? And when I got there, I didn't want to go in anymore. I think I maybe feel better about a trip if I spend my own money on it because it's like, this definitely matters to me. I'm using my scant savings to do this. And this was my first time getting choppered in somewhere. And as awesome as it is, and it's super awesome. There's something about walking into a place that allows you to like merge from your home environment where there's cities and cars and computers and smartphones and jobs and all this stuff into this like really special experience where there's none of that. The slow rise to the crescendo of the climb and then the slow descent on the other side leaves the experience feeling a lot fuller to me. And it feels less like you're a conquistador in a way because the way I feel in the aftermath is like I had no connection to this place going in. I don't know anything about that First Nation. I come in there, I grab a couple of First Ascents, and I think of First Ascents as like resources. As soon as you climb this thing, that's something that no one else can ever do again. 
So like I come in, mine these two resources, fly out, and that's it. When you chop out all of these other aspects of the experience, chop out earning the money, chop out earning the climb by approaching, you're gonna look for the depth to the experience somewhere. And what you have left is, like if we had like taken some gnarly fall and ripped gear and one of us broke our ankle, but we decided to continue in style to the summit, that would be really memorable. And it'd be like this profound experience. But then it's like, wait a minute, is that what I have to do to get the meaningful experience? Do I have to put myself in like greater risk? Is it going to feel empty if things work out? (laughs) Because that's not sustainable if so. And it's really scary. Like it's really scary to think about making a career where you're constantly trying to seek out that edge and get closer and closer to it, to have the experiences be more and more meaningful. With that realization, how do you think you might choose or approach objectives or expeditions differently moving forward so that they feel different when you come back? That's a really good question. On one day, I might give you one answer. And in the next day, Austin might call me and say, hey, I'm going into the Waddington. We might have a spot. Helicopters paid for. Do you want to go? And uh, it took me like two hours to go from my starting position, which was like, no, because I don't have any connection to the place and also resources like, you know, climate change and I'm helicoptering and that's silly. Took me like an hour to go from that to yes. And I was like, well, you know, if I have more Instagram followers, I'll have a greater platform for sharing the way I think about things and that might be able to make a bigger difference. It's so quick to just be like, well, those ethics can take a back seat for like one trip. If Austin or Miranda approached you tomorrow and were like, dude, we've got a month. We've got the helicopter <laughs> lined up. We've got this whole trip funded and asked you if you wanted to go back. Would you say yes? I mean, this place is just amazing. Some of the other walls that we didn't get to climb on, I can close my eyes and see them right now. Like, I would be an absolute liar if I said I didn't want to go back there. My goal is not to have a stock answer to that. I don't know. I don't know. But my hope is that I would not make a knee-jerk decision and I would take time to really think about it. This trip was an opportunity to learn more about myself and my goals and my motives and my actions and how well they align with my values. In the end, like that was probably the most valuable thing that came out of it. Was not the beauty, was not the climbing experience, was not even the great time I spent with really good friends. It was learning about myself. Great beams of light shot out from the sun Flew across the mountain like bullets from a gun I'm always alone when I think about you Sing, see what I see and I do what I do The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. In 2002, Yvonne Chouinard and Craig Matthews founded 1% for the planet. Duct tape and beer 
who makes the diaries, that's us, has been a member since 2010, and every year we donate 1% of our sales to not-for-profits working on environmental causes. It's a cool process, one that we look forward to every year. And now, individuals, people that aren't businesses, can join their global networks. That's right, you can get an individual membership to 1% for the Planet. Go to 1%fortheplanet.org backslash individuals to learn more and join today. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Winter may be here, but that does not mean it is time to get rid of your rack. Get some lights, extend the season. That's what I've been doing. Kuat's platform racks and roof racks only make it easier to get out at any time of day. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support comes from Voss and Bruin, who have something on tap just about every night of the week. From Tabletop Tuesday to yoga and live music, they have you covered with tasty beers and community events. Stop by the Richmond Brewery or follow Vossen on Instagram and Facebook. Support for the Diaries also comes from you. Thank you to everyone who has donated this year. Incredible. We use that money to create bigger stories like the Endangered Spaces stuff. We love it. Thank you. All those notes of appreciation. Thank you. Happy holidays, everyone. A huge thank you to Chris for sharing his story. He dreams about the Coast Mountains almost every day. But right now, he's focusing on promoting and selling his new book, which is great. It's kind of dark, but it's pretty damn good. As Above, So Below. It was a finalist for the Mountain Fiction Award at this year's Banff Mountain Film Festival. You can find a link to where to buy it on our website. Music today from Kai Engel, Little Glass Men, Bradley Carter, Chris Zabriskie, Hopeless Jack, Fog Lake, The Effed Up Beat, Dr. Turtle, and Richard Smith. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, DirtbagDiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fiscal Hall, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Seeing what I see and I do what I do